from a seven-story window Throwing parties in a ten-by-seven cell It's a stunning the legs I'll go To convince the whole damn world I don't need anybody's help Yeah, I am waving while I drown Don't bother swimming out it to save me I will only drag you down I'll try to use your body as a life raft Cause if there's room enough for one There must be room enough for two I'll sail the good ship you into the sunset Sipping on savory water Till my liver turns blue Yes, everybody, it is me, Matt Wright, coming to you. I'm actually not coming to you live today. Uh, this is a pre-recorded episode. I don't do them often, but when they do, that means they are going to be even better than normal. So thank you all for tuning in on this fantastic Thursday night. Um, there are a lot of things that you could be doing on a Thursday night, and I truly appreciate that you choose to not do those other things and choose to spend them here with me on the writer's block. Uh, first and foremost, allow me to thank the wonderful and fine people. At, actually, I made this kava this time. This is leftover kava from my birthday, so I'm not thanking anybody because I paid for it and I made it with these two hands the way that men are supposed to. So I'm thanking myself. Uh, so, Bulavanaka. And I made it really strong, so hopefully that doesn't affect me at all later. <clears throat> uh, but this week's episode, like all the other episodes are brought to you by Joe Soloski. He is running for Pennsylvania governor. Uh, if you live in the Pennsylvania region of these United States and are looking for a real liberty candidate in Pennsylvania, I highly recommend Joe Soloski. Uh, he is the voice of the muddied waters of freedom. He has the voice that could go on WKRP at any time. And if you are a Pennsylvanian who wants to... <clears throat> You are a Pennsylvanian who uh, wants to defeat the sword of tyranny. Uh, Joe Soloski is the key to Pennsylvania's success. 
The Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus, the fastest growing and second largest caucus in the Libertarian Party. We don't actually do anything. We post memes all day long and we don't support any political candidates, but uh, we do truly appreciate good waffles. Uh, if you want to become a member of the Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus, just head on over to the Facebook group and hit the join button. Uh, and uh, if you want to become a voting member, which is absolutely meaningless because we don't vote on anything, head on over to muddiedwatersoffreedom.com slash store and pick yourself up a Waffle House Caucus shirt or button. The Gravy King. Are you sick and tired of waking up in the morning and saying, man, what I want right now is a delicious cup of piping hot coffee that's going to nuzzle me like a lover from years past. And instead, I want something that tastes like I stepped in something my dog left in the backyard that will give me one seventh of the caffeine and will somehow keep me awake all day long well have i got good news for you Mudwater, the most aptly named sponsor of muddied waters media is a coffee alternative made with masala chai cacao mushrooms turmeric sea salt cinnamon and that is it yes it has one seventh the caffeine of coffee and tastes just awful i highly recommend adding honey to it yes i do drink this on occasion when i decided that i've hated myself enough for this day uh so if you want to make this switch and you want to know what it's like to go through severe caffeine withdrawals, go to muddywatersmedia.com slash mud and make the switch today. I am very excited to have my guest on. Uh, very excited. Uh, he has been on the Muddied Waters of Freedom. He was one of the first guests we've ever had on the Muddied Waters of Freedom. He was one of my first guests on the writer's block way back in the day. He is the host of the Political Orphanage uh, on World's Smartest Podcast Network. Uh, he is the host of Friday Release Valve, which is how I like to spend every one of my Friday commutes home. Uh, he was the host of Mostly Weekly on Reason. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome... Mr. Andrew Heaton. Hello, Matt. Good to be back. Thank you for having me on. No, I am so happy to have you on. Uh, I, it is always a pleasure to get you on. I spend an obscene amount of time with you in my ears. Um, and I truly appreciate any time that you have to come on over and uh, talk to me about whatever is going on in your world. Well, that's very flattering, and uh, I, I'm thrilled to find out that I'm, I'm regularly piped into your brain. You are. Uh, and, and hope that I'm, I'm living up to it when actually talking to you in person. <laughs> uh, you, have, you have yet to let me down in any way, shape, or form. Um, I, for, for all of the people out there, and for you, uh, I'm going to gush a little bit. When I first started watching uh, you on Mostly Weekly, uh, I was like, this is who I want to aspire to be like. You don't <laughs> want to be me, Matt. Trust me. This is, you need to pick a better person, a better L or F level celebrity to, to emulate. Right. And I was like, this this is it. This is who I want to be. This is like, I want to be like Andrew Heaton, except better looking. Um, and Yeah, exactly. Right. Better looking, better credit rating, <laughs> uh, more access to sex. There's me plus all those things would be terrific. Right. <laughs> 
Okay, that's that. That's all right. I might have you beat on many of those aspects, um, but except for the credit rating, I don't know. That's that's going to be up or down. Um, but I was like, this is I want to emulate your career. And when you first said yes to coming on Muddied Waters of Freedom, um, that was like one of the highest moments of my po- early podcasting career at that time. Um, and ever since then, I was like, I'm going to follow this guy no matter what he does, and I have held true to that. Um, but every time you are on, it is an honor. And uh, I just want to let you know that I, my dog just literally like ninja kicked the door open that is shut and locked. <laughs> he was just like, nope. <laughs> um, well, that's, that's very flattering. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm honored. He, he was very upset by me giving you praise and not him. He was just like, yeah, no dogs are real jealous of podcasters. People don't know that it used to be dogs and cats. Now it's dogs and podcasters, dogs and podcasters. but no, uh, again, thank you so much for coming on. Um, how I like to start most of these shows is you're not, I listen to a lot of your stuff and you can kind of explain it to everybody else, but you're not Republican. You're not Democrat. You're not really libertarian. You're just kind of, you're informed on a lot of different issues, but you're not really, you don't take sides on. on yeah. You know, I, I only claim to be an independent at this point. Uh, I'm definitely not a Republican or, or a, a Democrat. Um, I, although I am an eth- ethnically, I'm a Republican. I, I was raised Republican. I, that, that's my, my kind of initial background. I, I became a, let's say converted. I converted to Democ, De- Democ, uh, the democratic party when I was in college. Uh, and, and then I became a libertarian. Um, I, I share a lot of libertarian sensibilities, uh, but I f- like if, if we're defining libertarian as you don't take people's stuff or make them do things unless you've got a really good reason and you can prove that there's a it's going to be efficacious and there's a clear public need. Freedom works pretty well. The government doesn't like if it's something like that, then yes. But I but I find a lot of the time that when I would say like, oh, I'm libertarian, that um, when I talk to progressives, they would go, so you want to put children in coal mines? And I'd be like, no, they're not very good at that. That wouldn't, there's no use in putting children in coal mines at this point. We could have robots and things. But then meanwhile, I found that the libertarians would find out that like, I'm in favor of a government existing sometimes. Right. Like I want a tiny one, but I want a government. And then they would flip out and go, oh, you're not a real libertarian unless you think all stop signs should be privately funded. <laughs> Publicly funded stop signs are a form of slavery. I was like, all right, then I'm just an independent. I don't want to fight with you right. over this. So I only report to be an independent, but I'd say broadly speaking, um, uh, I share many libertarian sensibilities in that, uh, again, I think freedom works very well. I think individual liberty is very important. And I think uh, central uh, or uh, uh, command economies and central planning tend to not work very well. So I, I generally am uh, on the skeptical side of government ef- efficacy. So- the reason I, <clears throat> sorry, the reason that uh, you are on this episode today is actually somewhat topical, uh, since we are barreling toward a potential uh, massive global war. Um, uh-huh. And the more the president talks, the more terrified I get. But as much as the White House tries to walk it all back, uh, it's not going to stop anything. Um, but you well, at least out- he's super on the ball. You know, at least we've got a guy that. Definitely, definitely is like at the height of his mental acumen and the zenith of his life in terms of early middle age. It, it is, it is my, it is, it is my grand pleasure that I can say that yes, he is just on the ball. He is sharp as attack, and we have decorum mm-hmm. back in the White House again. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to worry about any weird ad libs that might cause international right. incidents. Um, 
But yeah, that, you, I guess that is something to keep in mind. Like, like the, it, this isn't my joke, but one of the better jokes from 2016 was I, I had a friend that was like, guys, we can't have Hillary Clinton elected president because if we do, Bill Clinton's going to be the first man and he's going to bang all the wives of the foreign leaders, probably gets into a war, which is probably true. You'd have to like, you don't want him involved there, right? And then meanwhile, like Biden, like, I, I think Biden's a nicer guy and less like, like better in terms of discourse than Trump. But that's not, even then though, like if, if Biden had a family sigil, it would be a man stepping on a rake. Like yes. he has a really long history of just walking into dumb statements. And that was when he was in his prime game. Right. That was before now where like someone will ask him, you know, uh, do you have the nuclear football? And he'll respond with like a conversation. Like he'll talk to us about a malt shake he had in the 50s. <laughs> and that'll like, you're like, I guess there's a point to this. So yeah. He'll, he'll talk about a train ride that he never took at some yeah, point yeah. because and when I was back there riding on the Amtrak every day for 50 years, what mm-hmm. what does that have to do with anything um but uh you came out with an episode on saint patrick's day uh march 17th my my former favorite holiday um called how now to... you hate irish people you really got about face on that you're like yeah. no laplanders those are the ones for me from now on that's right those laplanders um <laughs> Uh, I, I still love the Irish people. I want to say I love the Irish people. Uh, I'm a the, firm neutral. Don't yeah. dislike them. Don't particularly care for them. I've never liked. I've never met an Irish person I haven't liked. Uh, but hmm. a lot of their whiskey has caused me hmm. to do a lot of things I do not like. That's because Irish whiskey's too smooth. They triple distill it. You guys need to knock that off. It's like drinking right. water. It so is. You don't think about like like scotch. You're like you. I drink too much scotch, but at least when you're drinking it, because it feels like you're like you're drinking like rusty screws sometimes, or maybe like like just a, like you face planted the earth. You, you at least kind of slow down. Irish whiskey can sneak up on you. You got to be careful about that. It, yes, it absolutely can, and that's how you get DUIs. Um, or worse things happen. Um, but you came out with an episode on St. Patrick's Day called "How to Prevent or Provoke Stupid Wars," which the title was enough to drag me in. Um, Thank and- you. Because I was originally going to call it a, a primer on international relations theory. And I was like, no one's going to listen to that. <laughs> no one's I, need, yes. I need to have something a little bit more clickbaity and flashy than that. But I feel like I delivered in terms of the headline. Yeah, I loved it. And I will say, you you started off this episode by saying, I hope you have your cup. I recommend you get a cup of coffee because we're about to go into international relation theory. And that's not really the most exciting um that's not the most exciting uh topic and i only had mud water this morning which was only one seventh of the caffeine and i was enthralled the entire way through nice. so oh for the record i meant that you should get uh, coffee because i was going to be slinging a lot of ideas at you not because it was going to be boring <laughs> i don't do boring shows <laughs> I but, like, but i was dealing with a ton of concepts was like i i would if this were new to me i would need some stimulant to follow along that's fair that's fair because yeah there were a lot there was a lot of information in this um and i like i told you before the show um this was by like i was enthralled the entire way through and i listened to it twice just to make sure that i didn't miss any of the information that you were delivering and it was incredible absolutely incredible um so let's talk a little bit about international relation theory and i'm going to attempt 
to sound anywhere near as educated as the Garrison Keeler meets Fred Rogers that I have on my show today. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm so, like Garrison Keeler plus freedom. Right. <laughs> like Garrison Keeler with a handgun and wanting to legalize <laughs> mushrooms or something. Oh, also, I've not been me too yet. Going that, strong. That's. <laughs> and, you know, in the liberty movement, that gets harder and harder to say every day. Um, ah, maybe there's there's not as many ladies to <laughs> to get in trouble with. So just in terms of the sheer scope of the, the yeah yeah yeah, it's well, I'm not heading on the neck beard guys, so I'm okay. Right. So <laughs> there are multiple. So there, are, the way that you lay it out is actually quite brilliant uh, because you're like, and you see this so often. Um, you see it where when a Democrat's in office. And they're saying, okay, we're going to go to war in you know, Yemen, or we're going to go to war in, um, in Syria. All the Republicans are like, no, we shouldn't be doing this, blah, 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 blah. And when a Republican's in office and they're saying you know, the exact same thing, Democrats are like, no, we shouldn't be doing this, blah, 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 blah. And it, they just all rabble-rouse around, we're anti-war at this point. But nobody ever takes a look at the grand theories behind why these wars are actually happening and the way you broke it down was actually quite brilliant so uh, i'd like to start off with some of the uh theories that you talked about in it um like the realist theory was one that you brought up and i think that this is the one that i subscribe to pretty much the most in my in my thinking um so can you describe kind of what that is for everybody yeah, well, so first of all, I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head by saying that, that international relations theory is useful, um, not in a, you know, it, it is useful academically, but that's not why it exists. It, it exists as a kind of predictive model of how, how do states operate with each other and why do they go to war with each other, which is important because you need to have some kind of theory as to why that happens to inform the policies that you're going to do. So in the case of the Republicans and Democrats, both of them have, for the most part, been what we call muscular liberals or muscular liberalists uh, over the course of my lifetime, which is to say both of them tend to think that an engaged, robust deployment of American forces abroad is a smart thing to do. But the reason they do that is because pretty much everybody save Trump in my lifetime has been a liberal in, in an IR sense, which is different than like a liberal Democrat in Congress. Right. They, they, the terms don't mean the same thing. Um, but that's, in essence, what IR theory is, is, is why are, why are states going to war with each other? How do we avert war with each other? And if, if um, even if you're a you know, diehard Ron Paul libertarian who's just like, I don't even need to know any of this because we should be isolationists, it's still useful in terms of, okay, but what are all of the authoritarian regimes that might attack you going to do? Even if you don't want to go to war, what might they do that, right. that you're going to have to respond to at some point? Uh, I, I'm with you. I, I probably lean more towards realism than, than anything else, uh, or at least insofar as our rivals go. Um, realism is the idea that states interact with each other based on power, that power dynamics are the primary element that is informing the relationship between them. States operate in an anarchy. That is to say that there is no super government. Um, the United Nations is not a super government. It's a talk shop. There's, it doesn't have the ability to pass laws. There's no jail you can put nations in. There's no judge for nations. It's just bilateral treaties. That is to say that if there is an international criminal court or WTO or something like that that has an ability to influence what countries do, 
It's only because the country agreed to join it and they can pull out at any time, but there's no overarching authority. For that reason, states all are very concerned with being able to maintain enough power to not be dominated by rival states. And states are constantly under the realist mindset, trying to expand the power they have either to dominate their neighbors or simply to keep from being dominated. And uh, it's sort of the billiards ball model of international relations theory, or as I point out in the episode, the risk board episode or the, uh, the, the risk board theory of international right. relations theory. If you've, if you've played risk, in risk, you're not really thinking about like, well, the blue player is, he's a social Democrat, but the red player, he's a fascist or the green player. Oh, that guy's an, a, a monarchist. Well, you're not really doing that. And in, in risk, you're, you're, just, you're just forming alliances based on what is strategically advantageous for you to not be dominated by another player. And you're hoping you're going you're gonna to end up dominating the board. So realism very much comports with that. When I, so when I was a kid, I've never played risk. Full disclosure, never, never played risk. Okay. When I was, when I was a child, um, I asked my parents, uh, the same year I asked them, I was like nine or 10. I said, I want a pocket knife and risk. And they looked at me and they said, this kid may be the antichrist. I don't think we should be giving him weapons or teaching uh-huh. him anything about global domination. So Smart move. yeah, that was, that was really brilliant by my parents. So I've never played risk. Uh, but I, I understood uh, what you were saying. One of the things that you said in there uh, was if you start out risk strong, like if you start out uh, aggressively uh, and you take a lot of things uh, at the beginning, for the rest of the game, everybody's going to be wary of you, even if you don't have the power to do what you're supposed to do. Right. Yeah. Um, and that, that, even though I've never played the game, it spoke to me in a more broad sense. Um, it's sort of, the, and then you were talking about giving up, uh, you started talking about nukes, and uh, South, uh, South Africa used to have nuclear arms, and they gave them up. Um, and Ukraine, as we know, also had nuclear weapons mm-hmm. as recently as 1994, uh, and they gave them up in a deal with England, the U.S., and Russia, and they said, don't worry, if anything ever happens, we will protect you. Um, well, that, no, that that didn't happen. The the agreement between Ukraine and the United States and NATO was not that we would be defending Ukraine, but rather an assurance that we would not be invading Ukraine. Um, so the, the the you know previously, like like another big part of realist theory is deterrence. The idea that right. you, you because power is the primary thing you want to do, you want to stock up on arms, guns, and armies so that people think twice about wanting to invade you. Well, the biggest deterrent which exists is nuclear weapons. There's no larger deterrent than that. And I guess hopefully there never will be. And uh, so if you have a nuke, people think twice about invading you. North Korea is a pretty good example of this. Like we're, we, we think long and hard about invading North Korea because they couldn't presently nuke us, but they could nuke Tokyo if they felt like it. And they might well do that uh, just to piss us off and ruin the global economy. So they're, they're kind of safe from foreign invasion. Ukraine had nuclear weapons because it inherited them from the Soviet Union, right. uh, and we basically talked them out of it uh, and, and said, look, you don't need nuclear weapons to deter us from invading you. We're just going to promise we're not going to invade you, which so far, I think we've been pretty good about. Yeah, we haven't done it. But had they still had the nuclear weapons, Russia wouldn't if be they able still to- had the nuclear weapons, there's a good chance that Russia would not be invading them. Right. Uh, there, it, it depends. I mean, it kind of depends. Like, it's, it's also... It's very high stakes, right? Because like, as you pointed out at the beginning of your program, Matt, 
uh, if we end up getting sucked into a war, it'll probably escalate into a thermonuclear war. So like any conflict between great powers that are nuclear powers are very high stakes. Um, right now, in the limited conflict that is Russia versus Ukraine, it is a humanitarian crisis, but it's not a global extinction level event. Um, if Ukraine had nukes, uh, by, um, Putin would have thought twice about invading it. But if he did, uh, man, there'd be a lot of dead people uh, if, if it actually escalated to that level. Uh, and not just in Russia and Ukraine. I'm, I'm planning on doing a, an episode on nuclear uh, warfare on my show, The Political Orphanage, here in the next couple of weeks. And uh, one of the things that I recently learned is that if, um, say, India and Pakistan were to go to war with each other in a limited nuclear war, you'd still have about a billion people die outside of just those two countries. Um, the reason being so much soot would uh, rise up from a, a nuclear war of even limited scale that it would it would reduce the amount of sunlight coming into the world by about 40% for three to six years, uh, which means that all of the agriculture everywhere in the world would drop by about half by precipitation. So just, just in terms of people dying from starvation, about a billion people. So uh, in, in any event, yeah, nukes, nukes are real dangerous and they work great as a deterrent, but if, but if they ever don't work but as if, a deterrent, we're screwed. Right. It, it's, it, it's the mutually assured destruction theory on, right. If somebody uses this, it's going to be terrible, but who's going to be crazy enough to actually do it because of how this will turn out. Right. Um, <laughs> um, so when it comes to uh, realist theory, when it comes to realist theory, do you think that the kind of Republican I, – I equate it to the Republican theory of we need to spend all of our federal funding on uh, building up our military. We don't need to worry about anything else. Like that would be a good way to spend the federal dollars or is that not something that a realist would want? Uh, so yes and no. Yes, okay. a, a realist is going to want to bump up their national military budget. No, I don't think that that's how Republicans think. Uh, and I'd caution people to be careful about um, about trying to apply international relations theory and map it onto the system. You're you're less likely to do this being a libertarian. I think libertarians just sort of intrinsically by virtue of where, where they're positioned aren't going to be binary thinkers the way a lot of conservatives and Democrats are. Because like, right. I'm, I'm sure you feel the exact same way when people are like, you right wing or left wing. I'm like, I don't, I'm not defined by a bunch of dead Frenchmen. I kind of, I'm doing my own thing. And maybe like, like, and I, I, for a while, they're like, oh, libertarians, they're just Republicans who like pot. And you're like, no, they think differently. They're not, yeah, we think, this is we a think, different thing. It's not just that. We also uh, think heroin's okay too. Um, yeah. You know, and right. prostitutes. So, 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 so that, yeah, and prostitutes, there's, so that there's a whole different thing. So um, I think for a lot of people, there's this, um, uh, uh, or let me rephrase it, I think corporate media has a vested interest in sort of getting people to think in terms of this, this binary gutter of Republican versus Democrat. And so right. a lot of people have been trained to do that and will hear a new concept. And, and what they're really doing is, going, okay, which one of these is Republican, which one's Democrat? So I know which one I hate, and which one I like. Um, IR theory doesn't, doesn't correlate to Republican right. versus Democrat. Uh, insofar as it does, there's a consensus between Republicans and Democrats. Trump is the only deviation from that in, in living memory. And, and prior to that, I'd say like you have to go pretty much all the way back to Nixon 
uh, before you you get out of muscular liberalism. So um, liberalism, which we can talk about in a minute, right. um, is not the realist perspective. Or if you don't mind me jumping in, uh, no, um, please, liberalism, please do liberalism. Which, which again, when I say liberal in an international relations sense, I, I do not mean just the foreign policy version of liberal Democrats, which is a different. In the same way that classical liberal is different than liberal Democrat, right? Liberals um, are their their international relations is the idea that uh, power is important. The realists are correct about that, but that you are going to likely mitigate the risk of conflict and maintain peace by having open markets and democracy. The idea being that authoritarian regimes are more likely to be belligerent regimes. Democratic regimes suffer war weariness because they have to the, the 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 voters have a say in the fact that they're doing rationing or they're they're being sent off to die. Um, democratic regimes view each other as more legitimate than they view authoritarian regimes. And there's an idea that I think makes a lot of sense that economically interconnected nations are less likely to go to war with each other because it's so counterproductive financially and counterproductive to, in a democratic regime, the people who are probably running it, which are the people that are successful and own businesses and things like that. So the, the liberal position on international relations is that um, conflict is more likely to arise from an authoritarian regime than a capitalist democracy. Therefore, we have a vested interest in expanding the free world and getting other countries on board with our capitalist democracy and that of our allies. Right. And the way that that is typically done with liberals is by expanding institutions, i.e. NATO, which is a military alliance between such countries, the WTO, which is a way of trying to um, ratchet down tariffs and get everybody enfranchised into open markets and free markets. Um, the European Union is a very good example of a liberal institution where Germany and France aren't thinking about going to war with each other. Nobody's worried in Spain about Belgium invading or vice versa. It's actually been very successful in that regard. So most American presidents, uh, Republican or Democrat, have been liberals um, over the course of my lifetime. I mean, certainly from George H.W. Bush on. But I, I think Reagan, I think you'd probably say that, too. Of, I would, know, is the person? Huh? I, would, I would think that Reagan would also fall under that. Uh, yeah, under, under that I umbrella. think so. Yeah, I mean, and I, I, would, I, think, I like, think the other thing, too, for anybody that's like, ah, oh, Reagan, no, he, the Cold War. If, if you tend to view the Cold War, as most people do, as a primarily ideological conflict, and, and it was because we were against the commies, not just because Russia was a big power, but because it was a communist power, that would be more in line with liberal thinking than realist thinking. Realist right. thinking would be, look, it doesn't matter if, if Russia is a, a, a capitalist democracy, too, we'd still be juxtaposed to it because countries are always going to fight. Whereas liberals would go, no, the problem was we had the free world versus the authoritarian world. And we're pushing the free world. And I think Nick, I think Reagan would be a part of that. I think you pretty much have to go back to Nixon to get into the realist camp of like, I don't care. It's just a bunch of guns, right? right? That's why Nixon like went, we're, like we're going to drop the charade of pretending Taiwan is the real China. The real China is the one with Beijing. Everybody knows it. It's like that. So Nixon's in the realist camp, right? right. Um, I, I think George H.W. Bush, Carter, Reagan, um, George W. Bush for sure, Bill Clinton for sure, uh, and now Biden, they're all liberals and, and want to promote democracy, capitalism, and institutions abroad. Um, Trump, I don't think, is a liberal. I, I guess he is closest to a realist um, in that he wanted to get us out of NATO, or at least he, he opined that he wanted to get us out of NATO for a while, which is more, uh, I, I think, it's certainly, I don't know if that would necessarily be realist, certainly not liberal, because a liberal so, would see NATO as being very much um, crucial to the experiment that they're doing. Uh, when, and 
yeah. real uh, real quick when when um when the journalist uh oh god the journalist that was killed in saudi arabia uh Sol- mm. Soleimani? yeah khashoggi i think khashoggi Soleimani was the general uh yeah khashoggi when khashoggi was killed in uh saudi arabia and a lot of people especially um from the democrat left they were saying we need to go over there and you know they killed an american journalist and we need to go over there and fight I will never forget what Trump said because he he looked at the cameras and he said, I am not going to blow up the global economy over one journalist. And it was, it was a statement that it, it was a statement that was one of the most honest things I've ever seen a president say. Um, And it like, not like not a Trump guy, never voted for him. Wouldn't in the next time, but when he said that, I was like, that is the most honest you will ever see a politician be about anything happening on a global scale. Uh, because he was absolutely, he just said, nope, not going to do it because that would destroy the entire global yeah, economy. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. And the inverse of that would be the politicians, including Biden right now, who are are saying, you know, um, uh, the the conflict in Ukraine and Russia is a conflict between an authoritarian regime and the free world. And we are on the side of the free world. Hold on. Uh, my, excuse, I'm going to, I'm going to go down to Saudi Arabia for a hot minute to talk to our allies down there. Cause like you think of it, like why are, if, 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 if our foreign policy is actually based on ideology, we wouldn't be friends with Saudi Arabia because it's no. a despotism. It's a homophobic feudal would, dictatorship. And it has be, nothing to do with any American civic values. Right. We wouldn't be negotiating with Iran. We wouldn't be uh, we wouldn't be uh, friends with Saudi Arabia. We wouldn't be making deals with Venezuela right now. Uh, we wouldn't continue trading with China, which we can get into China later because the Walmart thing that you touched on in your episode blew my mind, and I was like, that is such a fantastic point. Um, but if it was just pure ideology, and we're just doing this for free people and free, you know, uh, democracies all over the world. We wouldn't be doing so many of the things that we are doing on a foreign policy uh, yeah. stance. And I, I guess to 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 play devil's advocate for for liberals, and I've got a touch of it in me. I kind of to give everybody where my position. My my position is we should be liberals with our allies. We should be realists with our rivals. So if we're talking about France and Iceland and England, we should be thinking in terms of institutions and how to enfranchise each other and how to get our economies interconnected and pro, promote democracy. Those are all good things, and I, I like it. And like probably something that I would disagree with with uh, you, Matt, and, and a lot of your listeners is like I like NATO. I think NATO is a good thing. Uh, whereas I think a lot of libertarians would be like, nope, we don't want any entangling alliances, nope. which I get. Um, but when when you're getting into like um, rival countries, a la Russia and China, I'm like, let's drop the pretenses here and just view these as billiard balls. Just assume they're concerned with power. I think that the liberals would, many liberals would respond and go, it's not so much that liberalism and realism are completely juxtaposed. It's more like liberalism is an asterisk you're putting on realism of like, yes, uh, power is very important. It is the most important thing. It's maybe 60 or 70%, but there is 30 to 40%, which is these other factors we want to discuss. Sure. Whereas a realist would be like, no, it's 90%. It's everything <laughs> else is just marginal. That's, that's fair. Um, but yeah, so the lip, like with many of the presidents in, in both yours and my, pretty much all of the presidents in both yours and my lifetime, um, mm-hmm. being more of the liberal kind of philosophy when it comes to international sure. relations. And yeah, or if you want to say, we could, we could say muscular liberalism just so our brains don't trip that wire and we start right. thinking <laughs> Democrats. So right. I, I'm we're, going to use it for that reason. That, that's fair. Yeah, we're not thinking about Ilhan Omar 
AOC like yeah, going right, off yeah. into battle. Um, but uh, so being that they, they're more of the muscular liberal uh, international philosophy, uh, where is the disconnect? Like, where is the disconnect between them when it's when a Republican's in versus when a Democrat's in? If they are all using There's this. Not. Okay. Oh, there, there is, but it's in-house. Uh, I mean, like that, that's part of it. And I think that's something that, that libertarians are very good at spotting and rightly so is that uh, Republicans and Democrats are, are, as you point out, like the, the Democrats are very against war until they have an opportunity to wage it. Then they're very much in favor of it. Right. right. Uh, re- in the same way that Republicans really care about the budget when they can't do anything about it. Uh, and when they actually have power, they love spending money, oftentimes on tanks and corn subsidies, and things, right? Because they're they're both to a large extent pretending at this stuff. Um, they're they're on the same page, broadly speaking, when it comes to foreign policy. And most of the fights that have been in foreign policy over the last few years have either been um, not questions of theory and worldview, but of just pragmatic application, um, like uh, the war in Iraq. Uh, of like basically did did saddam actually have weapons of mass destruction or not that right. was really more of a debate of like just reality and, and intelligence gathering it wasn't so much a debate of of um theory where the theory came in even then it was still in that liberal camp the the, the debate that was going on in the united kingdom and the united states was do we do we apply liberal theory that is to say do we push democracy and open markets and liberal institutions do we do that um multilaterally where we get a big coalition together or are we willing to go in alone with like us and poland if it comes down to it um, and that was the big division between like obama and bush was just he was a unilateralist and obama was a multilateralist but they both agreed on all these things i mean that, that's why obama's two terms in office were just an extension of george w bush's last term in office like we, we didn't pull back on anything significantly we didn't. Uh, we expanded we, operations. Yeah, we expanded operations and started several new wars in seven yeah. different countries. Um, right. So, or like, and, like, like Libya in the case. I mean, like I'm going to say Iraq is much more of a fuster cluck than than Libya was, but like Libya is also kind of a fuster cluck. And like the, the reason that Obama went into that was the thinking was, well, this is a humanitarian crisis, and also this is an authoritarian dictator, and we ought to help the liberal forces trying to fight the authoritarian dictator. So we're going to provide. Uh, a uh what do you call it a no fly zone which sounds like a force field just means we're going to shoot down airplanes if they come in there um and, and that was that was obama right and, and, and biden's very much on board with this who also voted for the war in iraq right um so moving on just a just a little bit um the when nixon came when nixon came into office and as we touched on earlier like the United States recognized Taiwan as China. The Taiwan is China. Yeah. The Beijing, no. And Nixon came in and he said, but, "But there's no way we can deny this is what it is. Like we are absolutely, right. we have to say yes. We're going to recognize that this is an area, and yes, this. I'm just going to work with the PRC. Um, and so that was when America started kind of recognizing Beijing as China and. Right. That ended up leading to some of the trades that we have going on now, um, as you stated. Uh, and, and it also also was instrumental in driving a wedge between the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China, which is something that Nixon did not want to have happen and which would not have been advantageous to the United States. Uh, you, you didn't want to have these two commies being all chummy and making commie babies. You wanted them to, to pull apart, which largely happened. We were able to kind of keep them on a different page. Right. 
And uh, as you said, Walmart is the largest trader with China in the world. Yeah, yeah that... Walmart is the largest trading partner with China. Like like every every country, like save America because Walmart's out of America. Um, like n- no one country would would come close to so tr- to, to Walmart. Uh, Walmart's a massive trading partner, and uh, this this goes into liberal theory actually. The idea that like well for that reason China and Walmart aren't super likely. Or, like, Walmart and China aren't going to go to war. I'm going to go out of the table. Say that's not <laughs> happen, but but pro- probably I America f- and China aren't aren't going to go to war. Uh, I feel and, like, I feel it's safe that the Waltons aren't going to pick up arms and head on yeah, over to Beijing. I, yeah, I'm with you. I don't I don't think they're going to like you know get in a jeep and and drive over uh, do that. Um, uh, and, and this, this goes, I mean, this goes way back, right? So like, like the, the first liberals in terms of, uh, international relations theory, you have Immanuel Kant, who's proposing, uh, the democratic piece. You have Adam Smith, uh, and Locke, um, who are kind of positing this cooperative worldview and, and an idea that markets are good and markets make people interconnected. Um, and I think there's something to that. Now, there are some very big data points against that too. Like I, I am very sympathetic to that position and generally think that that's true, uh, I'm also very much in favor of open and free markets, so I've, I've got a vested interest in this, but I do think that you're less likely to go to war. Now, World War I and World War II, France and Germany were each other's largest trading partners, so it's not, it's not a fail-safe. This does so, sometimes still happen, uh, but it would seem that on balance, when you have a lot of trade between the two, you don't want to have mutually assured destruction economically. If you're a democracy, the people that are able to lobby the government are very likely to lobby you not to bomb their assets in another country. And then the Andrew Heaton spin on it is I'm trying to get uh, like a Pulitzer Prize or no, a Nobel Prize in economics for what I call Heaton's theory of foreign mistresses. The idea being if I'm a capitalist in one country, but I've got ca- I've got a bunch of mistresses in Bangkok, I don't want to bomb Bangkok no more. So, you know, if, if we can get a bunch of uh, action going on between businessmen in different countries, maybe they won't do it. So this is actually a good argument on why Bill Clinton should be first man, because yeah. he would have mistresses all over. Right. No, you got to send him. The deal <laughs> right. is you got to send him to other countries, though. See, he's, he's just on a, a constant uh, goodwill just rotation. tour, just spraying, right. spraying Bill all over the place. I never thought I'd hear spraying Bill on this show, but yep. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, so um, we um, so one of the other theories you talked about was the uh, the the Marxist theory on international yeah. relations. Um, and can you describe what that is for everybody out there? Because this actually, I was unaware. I've heard of this theory. But I also have preconceived notions of Marxism. So I was sure. So this was actually kind of new to me. Well, and the weird thing is there's actually a lot of overlap between libertarians and Marxists when it comes to IR theory. Right. Um, So in in the same way that we need to make a distinction between liberals and IR theory and liberals in terms of domestic political economy, these are different concepts. Everybody listening should do their best to not think of Marxism in terms of the, you know, the protoplasm of communism right um really marxism in a nutshell when it comes to ir theory is whereas realism is saying uh war is the confluence of power dynamics between countries marxists think that it's economic dynamics between countries that you can most wars are explicable through a ruling class trying to make money and so a, a great like what would really, really well comport with um, Marxist international relations theory would be if you think we went into Iraq for oil, that is more in line with Marxist thinking. You've got 
um, uh, built uh, Dick Cheney, who's who's got stock in Enron or whatever it was, but he owns right. money in an oil company. A lot of the Republicans do. Bush is a Texan oil guy. He doesn't have stock in it directly, but no doubt a bunch of his family members do. And they're going into Iraq because they want to get cheap oil, right? That's very much Marxism would predict that. Um, whereas like a realist uh, would, well, actually I'll say like international, rela- or excuse me, a liberal would go, no, and like really we wanted to go into Iraq because we wanted to have a, uh, we wanted to have a democratic regime over there. Bush thought that if we went in and we liberated them, they would become a pleasant Hayekian liberal democratic country like ours, and then it would spread throughout the Middle East, right? So there's there's a juxtaposition between those two things. Um, I think libertarians actually have a lot of overlap with Marxist theory because right. you can basically, if instead of critiquing capitalism, you just slap the, the preface crony in front of it, all of a sudden it sounds very much like Ron Paul. Right. Like, do, do, you think, do you think crony capitalists are doing things to drive us to war? Yes. Do you think crony capitalists are exacerbating international conflicts so that they can juice up stock in Northrop Gummond and Lockheed Martin and things like that? Do you think that the very lucrative defense contractors are pushing America towards certain foreign policy outcomes in order to get rich? And like any halfway decent libertarian would go, yes. Yes. Um, but so, so, so with the Marxist and the Marxist would just, they would be saying that the, the primary drive of, of international relations is in fact economic and things like Lockheed Martin and defense contractors and things like that. So where you look at like Ukraine and Russia, we'd probably look at that from a Marxist perspective and say the, the fight going on right now in Russia is really a proxy battle between America and her allies that want to have access to Ukrainian markets and labor and Russian wanting to do the exact same thing. And it, it has less to do with, with ideology. It has more to do with who controls these various assets. Or alternately, can somebody make a buck off of it? Is, is Lockheed Martin selling the bombs to the Ukrainians that are being dropped over there and, and so forth? Yes, um, they are. Uh, but so like, if you were to take those three theories alone, just those three theories, and look at it, you can say, from sort of from a realist point of view, if the... Ukrainians had never gotten rid of their nu- nuclear weapons. This may ha- may have happened, may not have happened. We don't know, but we know that nuclear weapons are a good deterrent. Um, from a Marxist theory, you can say that Russia wanted the resources of the oil, resources of the natural gas, resources of the wheat, and access uh, more accesses to the ports that they have on the sea. Uh, and then yeah. from and probably a, something about Gazprom and the big gas line running through. Right. Like I don't know everything about that, but probably it's economically probably, motivated. Yeah. Pr- right. And then you also have the uh, liberal theory with with what Putin is saying, where he's saying, you know, we're in there, we're trying to get rid of the Nazis and end the genocide, and we want to right. instill. Yeah. So you kind of have three different. What's the right way? Three different spins, depending on yeah. which way you're looking at this one war. And, and as a result, in very different ways of mitigating the danger, which is the right. flashpoint here. Because like a lot of the time, like I said, I think a lot of the time being generous to liberals, liberals are, are not saying power dynamics aren't important. They're just saying it's like 70-30 and the other 30%, which is less important, but very important is democracy and open markets and institutions and ideas, right? Whereas like your classical liberals, like your, excuse me, your, I should say, I'm, I'm getting... <laughs> Your, your, your garden variety realist and think like Otto von Bismarck or Cardinal Richelieu is like, no, it's just we're talking about billiard balls and like whether they're stripes or solids, that's the level of impact that, that all of these ideas have, right? Um, so a lot of the time, that's, that's how that works. We're like almost, you could almost view liberals as just nuanced realists. 
However, in the case of Ukraine, this leads to very different interpretations of what's happening and very different interpretations of how to mitigate the danger going on. If you are a liberal, and that would include Bill Kristol, it would include Hillary Clinton, it would include anybody that's a part of the foreign policy establishment in the United States, Anthony Blinken, Joe Biden, George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, uh, the ghost of Donald Rumsfeld, all these guys would be muscular liberals, right? They're looking at this and charitably, they're saying uh, America is, the, is, is a part of the free world and Western civilization. And Ukraine is thinking about of its own volition, joining our fantastic world order. We, des- we, we have an obligation to the free people of Ukraine who want to be enfranchised to our clearly superior system to allow them to do so. And by doing so, we also safeguard Ukraine from becoming a more dangerous place on the international stage. So what we ought to be doing is trying to get Ukraine into NATO, the European Union, or a partnership or something like that, the same way we did with the Baltic countries, which are not giving us any trouble at all. Uh, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, all friends of ours. Poland, great friend of ours, part of the European Union, right? That's what we need to be doing and get it out of uh, the, the suzerainty and imperial pretensions of a a despotic madman over in Russia. Um, If you were a realist, you were going, that's a bunch of gobbledygook. Uh, If you're a realist, you're looking at this going, uh, in realism, great powers are like billiard balls. They have a zone of influence, unlike billiards. They've got a zone of influence. They have a backyard and they get pissed off at you if you go in their backyard. So a realist is looking at this going like, look, they, they have their own Monroe Doctrine, and they've been very clear on this. They've been very clear that if we went into Ukraine or the Baltics, which we did, they were going to flip out. And so from a realist perspective, what, what, what's happening is um, America has made overt pretensions to enfranchising Ukraine into our orbit. In 2008, George W. Bush announced that NATO is going to take Ukraine into NATO. It's just a, it's not a question of when or a question of if, it's a question of when. We're going to, and we're also going to take in Georgia, which is bordering Russia, right? right? About a month later, Georgia gets invaded by Russia. And, uh, and according to sources, Putin flipped out when this happened because saying we're going to eventually enfranchise Ukraine and Georgia into, into the Western world would be like Russia forming an alliance with Canada or Russia forming an alliance with Canada and Mexico. We would view that as a direct threat to us. And that is exactly what's happening. So from, uh, yeah. It, it would be very much like the Cuban Missile Crisis back in yeah, one so. or whenever yeah. that happened, um, with, right. and, Ru- and so with Russia from, from putting realist- weapons in Cuba. Right, or or like in this instance with Ukraine, it wouldn't even be Cuba. It'd be like it'd be like Russia putting uh, weapons in Vancouver or Manitoba right. or something. Like which is is real close to the capital, right? Right. Um, so if if you're a realist, you're you're looking at this and you're going. We have like no one's claiming Putin's a good guy. No one's claiming that he's ethically justified in his things. But we're just saying from not not in terms of ethics, just in terms of rational thinking and in terms of how the physics of nation states work. We have provoked Russia into doing this. And what we need to do is pull back and and come up with some kind of peace. Ideally, Ukraine will be neutral. But the fact is, it is their backyard, much the same way that Mexico's in our backyard. We would not be okay with China putting in Air Force bases. We would invade it to stop them. That's what's going on right now. So what we need to do is pull back. And so, uh, and and then like John Mearsheimer, who's kind of the prominent realist right now, would say like, well, we need to be pulling in Nixon right now and making sure that China and Russia don't team up because right. we're moving towards a tripolar world. Um, but that that is a big flashpoint policy-wise because the the 
the liberals are like, yeah, like get get Ukraine into NATO, get it into the European Union. Let's let's do this. Let's pull it out of Russia's backyard, put it in ours. The realists are saying, no, you're going to like you're going to put them on DEFCON 4 forever. You are going to permanently put us at the brink of nuclear war if you do this. And it's not going to stop until they don't feel threatened in the same way that if we had a bunch of nukes pointed at us from Vancouver, we wouldn't sleep as well at night. Yeah. So. With the sanctions that we've, that, you know, the United States and much of the rest of uh, Europe and some other areas of the world have been putting on Russia, I see it, and I could, and I could be completely wrong because I am not a foreign policy expert by any means. But the way I see it is, they are actually uh, bolstering the relationship between Russia and China and making them stronger allies and more reliable trading partners. Because it seems like anything that we're like, okay, we're going to put a sanction on oil coming out. uh, China's like, we'll take it. And everything just seems to be feeding that way, making that a much stronger alliance, which seems to be undoing everything that Nixon did back in 1969 or 70. Yeah, no, I think that's a very fair point. Um, I, I don't know that um, under normal circumstances they would be buddying up more than they are right now. But the fact that they're basically being forced into an economic relationship um, and, and China's willing to have that, I would think would be would, would be facilitating all of that. And and they have like like a, 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 the, the leader of China has said, what is it like? There is no limit to the friendship of our states or something like that. They appear to be buddying up and they make comments to that uh, on a regular basis. Um, yeah, the sanctions are, uh, I, I am usually very skeptical of sanctions, but they kind of, they, they sort of serve three purposes that potentially um, serve something, right? So the big one that sanctions do is just virtue signaling. Usually yeah. sanctions are just the economic version of virtue signaling where a country goes, we're going to slap, say, we're, uh, we're putting 40% tariffs on beads coming out of your, that's how much we hate your authority doesn't do anything at all. Uh, and a great example of this is Cuba, where we've had sanctions since Castro came in, and he lived a long, full, authoritarian, commie life, despite us putting sanctions on him. So sanctions, a lot of the time, <clears throat> really exist as a message to your own base. They have no effect on or, or minimal effect on international relations, other than they hurt the people at the bottom of whatever country they're in. Because like, if, if the GDP drops by 10% in communist Cambodia, I guarantee you the people running the Politburo don't suddenly eat 10% less food. Um, right. there, is, there is targeted sanctions, with a, which I think are fine, uh, and if not laudable. Targeted sanctions, you're basically saying like, look, we're, we're not trying to target the people of Russia. We're trying to target Vladimir Putin and the thug cronies and oligarchs that run his country. We're going to try and piss them off. Okay. I, I like that because you're not hurting people at the bottom. Um, and then there's the, the final idea, which is we are going to make um, sanctions so onerous that we're going to either force regime change or policy change. Um, normally, it's not very useful. It did it did happen with Iran. Um, there there were uh, multilateral sanctions that were posed on Iran that forced them to the the negotiating table with their nuclear ambitions. So sanctions did work in that instance, but they rarely do they work. That most of the time they don't work. Um, in the case of Russia. What might happen is it's possible that we could make the sanctions so intense that we just shut down their economy to the point where they can't prosecute the war. I do not think it's very likely that the Russians are going to rise up and kill Putin. That is kind of the hope with some of these things is that we'll oh, make yeah. uh, we'll, we'll stir up the economic base. Some people will not be able they, they can't go to McDonald's. They can't buy iPhones. Their bank accounts have been freeze. The stock market plummets. And enough people are like, 
all of my money's gone. We should kill the leader. I, I don't see that happening. I think when you got somebody worth that much money that's been in the KGB, that's that paranoid, I, I don't see him getting knocked out. You might, we might be able to, though. It's possible that we might be able to just cut off the gas lines to all the tanks going into Russia. Uh, Russia has a, um, Russia's like maybe the ninth, eighth or ninth largest economy in the world. Um, it's, it's not as big as Italy. Italy has a larger economy than Russia. Um, Russia's economy is about 1.5 trillion, $1.4 trillion. So more money than I've got, uh, but a lot less money than the United Kingdom, America, France have. Uh, it's, it's actually a pretty small economy and it's just a petro economy. They don't have a service economy like ours, which is why those sanctions might work to some extent. Although even then, and we're now really getting into the weeds, I think that I think that they'll have an initial choke point and then, and then I think it won't work. Right. So the reason I say that is oil is a fungible resource. People can buy oil from China if they want. So there is a lag effect where the supply chains have to reroute through China. And that means that for a while, the money won't be happening. Um, Once that straightens out, I'm like, well, you kind of missed your window, but theoretically we could just make like literally deprive them of the funds necessary to buy bullets and feed guys over there. Yeah, that's what, like, when they were saying, like, uh, Visa and MasterCard were shutting down operation and uh, that they were going to cut off, um, they were cutting them off to everything. Like, you can't get Pornhub over there anymore, which. Wow. Yeah, poor poor Russia. That's the one that's going to push them over the edge. <laughs> that's, that's the That'll one. That'll be the one. Right. Um, but they just started, I mean, obviously not Pornhub. They're not getting Pornhub from China. But, uh, like, they just started doing deals with with Chinese banks, like just it, every, every, every sanction that I saw that we had put on them, it just seemed like that just bolstered another portion of the Chinese Russian Alliance. And it's just like, okay, now we're banking with them. Okay. Now we're selling our oil to them. Okay. Now we're going to trade with them on this. And it just seemed like every single sanction on top of hurting your average Russian citizen, who many of them don't want this war happening. It just seemed as though everything was hurting them. Now they've got to wait for new uh, new bank cards in order to get on yeah, the I mean, tram. I'll, I'll go a step further in terms of the average Russian person. Not, not only do a lot of them not want the world, though the polling would indicate a little more than half of them do, but, but even then, they didn't get to pick Vladimir Putin as their leader. He's not yeah. a freely elected Democratic leader. Like, I mean, you even I'm, I'm very hesitant to ever attribute collective guilt to a large group of people, but... Um, in this case, I don't think there's any because he, they're not a democratic regime. The people of Russia are not accountable. Or Vladimir Putin is not accountable to the people of Russia, whether they like him or not. He's in there. Right. So um, for us to try to punish them, I think would be immoral. For the most part, we've not been well, our leaders have not been trying to do that. They've been collateral damage, in effect. Um, right. We are seeing that kind of idiocy happen, I think, on the cultural level where like, uh, you know, there was some symphony in Wales where they decided not to do a Tchaikovsky concert, or rather they did it, but they knocked out all the military marches and um, things like that. I, I think that's all dumb. Like there I was a, f- figure skaters don't have anything to do with this. They can skate as far as I'm concerned. There was a somewhere, I think it was in Wisconsin, and that could just be my own biases against Wisconsinites, but there's a, and because it happened at a uh, mustard museum, but they took out all the Russian mustards. Oh God, that's so dumb. It's was, so dumb. And places were saying they weren't serving Russian dressing, and I'm like, it's ketchup and mayonnaise what, mixed. Like, if they, if if the goddamn Wisconsin Mustard Museum actually gave a shit, what they could have done is they could have said, "Hey, we're gonna give 10 percent of all profit today to 
Ukrainians that have been displaced and the massive humanitarian crisis that's happening. This is one of one of the things that I find irritating about all this. The, the biggest thing here right now is that there are a lot of nice people that do not deserve this, that have been killed or bombed or forced out of their homes. And that's all very sad. And that's the top thing. But in terms of what irritates me beneath that, there's a shit ton of people that don't actually want to do anything, but want to get moral credit for being on the right side. And that's right. why, like, if if you are, I, I'm not claiming I've done anything, by the way. I've not given any money to Ukraine. And I haven't volunteered. So I, I am morally neutral. I am not a good person in regards to this. I am at best a zero on a negative 10 to 10, right? <laughs> but if I put a little orange and yellow or orange and blue flag or, or blue and yellow flag on my, my Twitter profile, it doesn't do anything. Um, I like all it's to, you know, like, I don't know. There's a lot of people that want to get credit for doing things that don't involve them sacrificing time or money. And I am disinclined to give them credit for it. Yes. Um, I, yeah. Whenever I see the blue and yellow flag on somebody's profile or whatever, and I'm just like, is that you what you're like, doing? Like that's, now that I think about it, that's Twitter, how Twitter could do a great thing too. What Twitter could do if, if they wanted to be smart about this, Twitter could say, we are selling ukrainian flags that you can put on your your twitter profile if you want to get a ukrainian flag it's ten dollars or however much beyond that you want to pay and we send all of it 100 percent of it goes then yeah and and if if at that point you wanted to get them i'd give you credit for it of like you know like thank you for doing that i like regardless of what you're because this is another thing too i don't care what your intentions are i care about the impact of what you're doing so like if you just wanted to show off your friends but you're giving that money to ukrainian refugees good for you i'll give you that credit Uh, but yeah there's a lot of that stuff going on yeah, and even if it's only ten bucks, still it's ten bucks, and that's yeah, that's going to help someone somehow, some way. Um, I, I would, I would love for somebody uh, if there's any like really badass economists that are good at quantitative analysis listening to your show. I would love for somebody to write a um, write a paper on how many Twitter followers you need to have before it is more effective for you to tweet your opinion than it is to just give a dollar to any charity. Because I suspect that for the vast majority of people on Twitter, myself included, it would literally be better for me to just give $50 to charity every year than to tweet all the asinine crap I care about because most people don't care, aren't listening, all those things, right? So like, but it, like, you know, Kim Kardashian, if she if she wants to leverage her massive power, may, that probably does change the world, right? But like for the average person, literally giving a dollar, one dollar, is so much more effective than you retweeting like I stand with Zelensky or whatever. That's not doing anything, right? So, right. Um, yeah. If anybody, if anybody can do a quant analysis on that, I would love to read it. So, we so we've covered uh, realist theory. We've covered liberal muscular liberal theory. Uh, we've covered Marxist theory. And uh, what's what's the last one? I'm blanking on the last one. And, well, I'll do the last one, and then unfortunately, I've got to go. No, that's uh, fine. But yeah. but we. We'll we'll roll that one up and then and then say our goodbyes. Um, the the other one uh, that that uh, is the big one that's brought up uh, a lot is social constructivism. That's it. Uh, and social constructivism is predominantly concerned with individuals and ideas. So as a, a recap again, realism is power politics. Uh, liberalism is power, ideas, democracy, markets. Marxism is it's all economics. And uh, uh, social constructivism is ideas and individuals and norms and things like that. Um, so it's very nuanced. And it's very granular. Uh, the problem that I have with, with social constructivism is that I don't see how it can be useful predictably. Um, it's, it's, it's useful for like 
if we've already decided to 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 focus on a particular country, then social constructivism is useful. So, so like social constructivism, where where it comes in handy is like, um, okay, yes, power is very important, but you know, Germany and Austria are both German speakers, and so they're more likely to like each other. Uh, England or Canada and America are separate regimes, but they both speak English. They both have uh, you know shared historical background with the British Empire and all of those lights. So. So money or uh, a military arms buildup is going to be different to Canada than it is to Cuba in regards to the United States. So there's, there's, these are all true. The, 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 the nuance is accurate, but, it, but, but you get into so many minutiae with social constructivism of ethnicity, language, religion, dynastic background, old grudges, sports, all, all these things to where it's like, I, I don't really see how it's useful. Uh, it it kind of came into its own from what I can tell um, during uh, during the ensuing terrorist conflicts we had with 9-11 and thereafter, where that was really what everybody was focusing on, because non-state actors are very difficult to apply to liberalism or realism. Like realism, if it's billiard balls, well, like terrorists aren't really a billiard ball. So like, how do we even think about that, right? Um, like, like, do we, okay, terrorists aren't billiard balls. What, what do we, how do we get the terrorists into NATO? That doesn't make any sense. So like, like social constructivism was kind of useful as this sort of like miscellaneous dustbin for stuff that didn't work. Um, but, but I, I don't personally think it's super useful. I, I think it's, it is kind of playing at the margins. And wasn't it kind of based on something Churchill did where he was trying to like bring together English speaking countries to form. some? yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that. He, I, I don't know that you'd say that he was a social constructivist. Um, I think like you could, you could argue that Churchill was a liberal, in right. that um, he was trying to build a, a um, you might call him a realist too. I actually don't know that much about his foreign policy other than he beat the hell out of the Nazis. Uh, like, like I'm, uh, you can make the argument he's a realist because he was happy to team up with the Soviet Union to fight the Nazis, which is a very realist thing to do. Um, you could make the argument that he was liberal as well because he was very concerned with establishing a alliance of English-speaking peoples. Um, and, and he would kind of like, like NATO kind of type thing. But he, in his idea, as the, um, the British Empire was beginning to set, he really wanted to make sure that the former British Empire, what is now the British Commonwealth, and the United States were going to be in a, in a good relationship. And to, to a great extent, he, he pulled that off. It's called, it's called the special relationship. Uh, and that's a, a, a the, the special relationship between the United Kingdom and America, uh, I believe, is taken from a Churchill speech, the same speech that he talks about the Iron Curtain descending across Europe. Right. Um, but th- but that would be an example of like this is an institution that binds multiple powers through um, shared values and markets. Um. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. That. I, I mean, I don't really have any questions on that one. <laughs> Great. Well, yeah, I gotta so go, man. No. I, hey, hey, thanks for having me back on. Uh, if, Absolutely. if I can make a pitch to your audience, uh, Please. Uh, you, you've, you've got a lot of the really good stuff in this conversation with Matt, but there's other good stuff on the political orphanage. So if you thought I was funny or I gave you an erection or you learned something and you think maybe that could happen again, I invite you to come check out the political orphanage where you will find uh, a lot of other deep analysis of issues that run opposed to that whole red versus blue dichotomy we talked about earlier. Well, thank you so much for spending the time with me. Uh, I still owe you a copy of my last book. Uh, if you email me your address, I will send it to you. It's the one about the uh, dissociative identity disorder. Um, so I will email or I'll send you a copy of that if you give me your address. And uh, I look forward to whenever I get to have you on again. It is always a pleasure. It is a highlight of my year every time. Um, and. Uh. 
And uh, I can't wait to finally meet you in person so we can uh, just kind of sit down and hang out and have a I beer, rob a bank, all that good stuff. I, I don't uh, drink, Matt, but we can rob a bank. All right. I'll talk Thanks to you so soon. You have a good one. Bye. All right, everybody, that was the one, the only, the mighty Heaton host of the Political Orphanage. Uh, be sure to follow him, subscribe. He is amazing. He's got a lot of great ideas. Again, as he said, he does not subscribe to libertarian viewpoints, but he's not a Democrat, he's not a Republican. So you're going to find things that you disagree with him on. You're going to find things that you uh, agree with him on. No matter what, he is a great person to uh, follow, to listen to. And uh, he's just, he's hilarious. He's he's just a great dude. Um, since this is being pre-recorded, I don't remember the date it's going to air. Uh, I believe I can say this tomorrow. Tune in for an all-new episode of Mister America: The Bearded Truth, which will be airing at two o'clock Eastern, two two p.m. Eastern, and uh, then we will hope you have a fantastic weekend. Uh, before next Tuesday when Spike Cohen and myself get together for an all-new episode of The Muddied Waters of Freedom where Spike and I will parse through the week's event like the sweet... It's spring now, right? Yeah, spring. Sweet spring... that we are. Um, And then... Next Wednesday will be an all-new episode of uh, My Fellow Americans. Then next Thursday, right here on Muddied Waters Media, you can tune. No, you can't because we don't air those anymore uh, because we don't want to get kicked off social media. But they, we will be uh, hosting the Muddied Zoom for all of our subscribers. If you are one of those out there who want to join the Muddied Zoom, just head on over to anchor.fm slash muddiedwaters slash subscribe and you can be one of the chosen few who get to come on and talk with Spike Cohen and myself as we uh, just talk about whatever the topic of the day seems to be. Uh, Thank you all so much. Uh, Also, special shout out to Sarah, uh, superfan Sarah Andreg for giving me a book of facts so I don't have to keep looking for them at the end of each episode on Thursdays. But your fun fact of the week is German is considered the sister language of English. Have a great weekend, everybody. And remember, no matter if you're white, if you're black, if you're male, if you're female, if you're trans, if you're uh, skinny, if you're fat, if you're whatever at the end of the day it's night i i am i am swinging from a seven story window throwing parties in a 10 by 7 cell it's a stunning Sail the good ship, you into the sunset. Sipping on savory waters of my life.
Oh, fuck. Oh. 